Welcome to the Infinite Improvisation Podcast, Adventures in Music and Creativity with Steve Tressler in Seattle and across the continent and across the border. We've got Lauren Best in Ontario. Yay, happy to be here again on Zoom across time and space. <laughs> so for this third pilot episode, we will be talking about our stories a little bit. This is the Who episode. We've covered a bit of why we're doing this, why the conversation is important, but what what improvisation is and, and isn't. And today, learn a little bit more about myself and Lauren. And, you know, we're just getting to know each other as well, only, you know, known each other for two months too. So we're um, learning about each other's stories and practices, all of that. So. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, kind of how we, how we got to where we are mm -hmm. <laughs> and what we, what we've been picking up along the way. Yeah. So and we decided we're actually not just going to go chronologically. We're going to bounce around and tell some stories and see and see how things go. I guess I've got a I got a question for you. I know you are the poet laureate for Owen Sound, and mm -hmm. tell us about that. And forgive my ignorance, but what does a poet laureate do? Ah, yeah. So a poet laureate is an official position for a given area. So Canada has a poet laureate. You know, often it's a it's a country or a city or, or, or a municipality. Um, so Owen Sound has a Poet Laureate program. It's actually one of the few Poet Laureate programs that's privately funded through sponsors. Um, it's currently administered by the library in Owen Sound. And so the role of a Poet Laureate is to elevate poetry and educate about poetry and be an ambassador of poetry in the community. Um, sometimes that may include writing poetry. So, for example, writing poetry for particular events or reading or performing poetry, whether something written specifically for that or not at um, official sort of events. So I, I presented poetry at Owen Sound City Council. Uh, there's different types of poet laureate programs, right? So there's different... Uh, sometimes different focuses or themes or different expectations of poet laureates or different ways they're invited into the community and and sort of different ways they carry out their tenure, so to speak. I'll pause there. Any questions so far? No, no, keep, no keep, keep going. Yeah. So in my case, uh, the focus of my tenure was on children. So it was decided before the... Uh, before ap the call for applications went out, that that would be the focus. And so I knew that going in and the uh, application I made was kind of focused on that. Um, and then so throughout my tenure, I was trying to focus my efforts on children and poetry for children, which, of course, figuring out how to best approach that, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, whether... So I did some school visits, I did some things for parents and little people, uh, because that's something I have a background in. So um, in my case, I kind of, uh, like within the position, used my strengths, um, as well as like consulting the community and the, the uh, committee I was involved, that, that helps steer, <laughs> the, helps advise, that's the word, advise the position, um, to sort of decide what, what that meant in in my case and not everything i was doing was for children i was of course mm -hmm. like doing things that weren't involving children as well but that was the sort of directive i had going in yeah mm -hmm. so so these days yeah how does the the poetry interact with your with your music practice i know you've got your book of poetry that you're you're in the process of publishing and you know i was just actually listening to your album the other day as i was driving back from my gig your so oh. songwriting project, which I imagine, yeah, there's an obvious interplay there between the poetry and music, but yeah, mm -hmm. with your music teaching practice and, and how much of those those two disciplines are integrated these days, if it feels mm -hmm. like you put your poetry hat on to work on publishing this book versus your, your music practice. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's different aspects to it, right? Yeah. So when it comes to working on publishing the poetry book, if I'm being totally honest, at the part at the stage I'm at, a lot of that is about being a producer, <laughs> working on a on a publishing and production project, you know, like working on a project as opposed to actually writing the poetry at this point. So interestingly, like my skills from having, you know, recorded an album as a musician or carried through pro projects as a musician, 
apply in that sense, but I'm also learning about the differences as well. But I'll answer the question creatively instead and talk about more about like that side of things. Yeah. So I think I if if I think back, you know, about about the, the evolution in my practice, I would say I think I started as a poet in some ways because I was writing poetry before I was writing songs. However, if I go back even more, was I really writing poetry before I was writing songs or was mm. I as a child just really doing both, <laughs> you know, and um, and kind of engaging in, in both like very spontaneously. But uh, when I like, you know, as I was starting to become aware of my own creative practice that was manifesting in writing poetry before it was coming out in songs. Mm -hmm then I kind of became a songwriter, right? So I, I was writing songs, I was performing um, songs, and I had this, this sort of singer-songwriter. Um, I, I, was, I was looking for the right word, not uh, self-image, I, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm. Where I was, especially as a teenager, right? Given uh, encouragement and opportunities specifically as a singer-songwriter, right? So I was much less focused on poetry. And at that point, I wasn't, I hadn't really been encouraged to write poetry nearly as much, you know, like just by naturally what was happening around me. It hadn't, I, I hadn't felt nurtured as a poet in the same way as as a songwriter. And it felt that poetry was a vehicle to songwriting, right? Mm -hmm. That if I was writing poetry, it was to eventually write a song because that's what I could play. And that's what, what you know, what was more in alignment with my goals of performing and, and nurturing a music career. Mm -hmm. So then having done a whole bunch of music stuff and then coming back to poetry, sort of, I never stopped writing poetry, but being asked to focus on poetry as, as poet laureate, which I should say, I also did music as poet laureate. And before my tenure, the poets laureate previous, they actually had two, two people sharing the position and it was a musician and a poet. Mm. Um, and the musician was also a lyricist, so they like worked together. And so there was al already kind of in the history of the program, this this musical integration. Um, and I was using music too, but at the same time, it invited me to really focus on poetry and kind of allow my skills and my interests and my creativity in, in that to be poetry without feeling like there was a next step for it. Mm. Feeling that the poetry itself was enough and so that was a cool thing. <laughs> and because it gave me this focus too of, of a directive and imperative to be the thing, <laughs> to be the poet laureate, to be the transformation, to be the creativity, right? It meant that I was engaging with poetry in a lot of different ways. So sometimes that was in a community context. Sometimes I was working like directly with children, um, both in terms of for ge generating creative mm -hmm. ideas or for in like increasing their capacity and skill and amplifying their ideas. Um, sometimes that meant I was just working on my own creative practice, but exploring things in, in maybe new ways because it, because of the context. Wow. Well, we didn't talk about doing this. This might be a good time to warp the space time continu continuum and actually edit in that, yeah, like listening to a sample of your music. Mm. You can throw that in and post. Um, That'd be cool. Throw in, yeah, one of your from your songwriting sure. project, which was, which is really cool project, and it's very well produced. Like you've got a lot of arrangements and horns, and like some pretty sophisticated ensemble arrangements too. So, did you? Was that all stuff that you that you arranged, or how did that all get? Yeah, get put in together? terms of that project. Yeah. Uh, so, I did self produce that, but I mm. had um, associate producers who I worked yeah. with who helped me. So I was very. Um, nurtured i would, I would yeah. say um by others um so i wrote all those songs when i was in high school oh wow in grade 12 so my last year of high school i started making that album it might have even been a little before grade grade 12 and i was kind of hard at work making this and i ended up not going to university at that time because i was like okay i gotta finish this album University is going to have to wait because <laughs> um, I clearly have to finish this project. I didn't want to um, sideline it. Uh, so for the horn arrangements, I didn't do the horn arrangements, arrangements myself. I mm -hmm. worked with arrangers. I worked with session musicians. Um, does that answer? Does that answer your question? Yeah, was, it was, yeah, about, the pro yeah about the process. Yeah. Let's it was, see. What, which 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 one, which 
which track do you want to <laughs> do, do dro- drop show? drop in later um yeah. well interestingly actually the uh the nihilism song which is oh. it's also so funny for me to look back at uh, mm-hmm. i don't know if we'll pick that track we, we can return to this yeah. in post um but one of the that that track from it i had a friend do a dance piece to that track and so it was really oh. neat um seeing what i've been working so hard on in in studio kind of living on its own and and intersecting uh with someone else's creative practice and someone else's study um and and arts practice in that way and i mean i i feel so lucky that i just got to work with the musicians i did on on that album and in terms of improvisation as we talked about in the last episode probably all the episodes of our, you know, uh, session musicians and and uh, improvisation in the context of recording and uh, like coming up with arrangements through improvisation. And mm. that was an awesome process. And that yeah. was amazing to see and inspiring and uh, just just awesome to collaborate with people kind of in that in that creative zone. All right. So Lauren Song from grade 12 from Sticker Collection, <laughs> which you can go by on Bandcamp. All right, here, here's a bit of the nihilism song. Heat's rising to my face, disgrace, too much to lose in a sweet embrace. Maintain the distance while keeping the pace. You don't understand how much you've misplaced. I want you to get lost in you, but lost was never found. You're running to try to catch up to me But I'm running out of time before I hit the ground My solution for sensitivity Lies in my nihilistic tendencies If I don't believe in you Then you can't believe in me And and what about for you? So when I describe yeah. that process, yeah, first and and like comparing that to maybe the first album you did hmm. or other other albums you did, like how? Hmm. Tell us a little bit about about your background and process when it comes to studio albums. Sure. Yeah, I. From all the music I grew up listening to, you know, I still really like the, you know, the container of an album, you know, a journey from beginning to end, I guess, that would fit the physical medium at the time, you know, at 30 to to 45 minutes. So uh, when I first, I think I was maybe in my, yeah, in my mid 20s, and I put together my first album, Resonance, and it started with a group that I put together after, so I went to, after I so I grew up in the Northwest, went away to music school. I studied jazz saxophone at New England Conservatory in Boston and came back to the Northwest and wanted to put together a group to play some of my own music. And that's that's when I was going out to jam sessions all the time, just meeting people, getting a feel for, for other folks in town and how they played and other concerts. And I had an idea for uh, an ensemble to put together. And, you know, some of them actually I hadn't even met, like the guitar player, Chris Spencer, who's now a good friend of mine. I've recorded at his home studio. He's helped mix my last couple projects. I just heard him play and people recommended him. And uh, this is something I recommend to people getting started now rather than like, hey, let's start a band and rehearse every week. I actually just hired them for a gig. So as a jazz musician, it's like, hey, I've got a club gig. I can guarantee this much money, which I wasn't getting a guarantee from the club. I was maybe going to lose money. I just wanted to get these people together, rehearse, and they were all down to do it and got these uh, got these folks together and got Don Clement, amazing pianist who's now in the Denver area. And these folks are, it started with, I'm going to hire them for something. And then over time they became friends and collaborators and we've worked together. So it was a group we had done like a few, you know, a, hand, a handful of shows, but it wasn't a band that was gigging all the time, more vehicle for uh, various original, mostly my original music, but other things that I like covering and some of the other band members pieces. And, 
then I had at some point I was actually taking up taking a walk in the woods through Carkeek Park and I had just had this moment where I'm like oh I have an idea for this Kenny Wheeler corral that I love that would flow into this thing that I wrote a couple years ago and I just had an idea for the arc of that album like oh this could work and I pieced it together so there's some albums I've been a part of you know, as jazz musicians hey we're going to record a bunch of tunes and see what turns out good and then we'll figure out what order to stick them into but most of my projects have had an idea for like the beginning to end like what the journey of the, hmm. the album is going to be. And there's lots of surprises along the way. But then once I had that idea for that, yeah, uh, put put the band together and went, recorded some at Chris Spencer's home studio, the guitar player, and some at another small small studio. And I did some horn overdubs. So there's a lot that was very live and you know, interactive Im- improvisations, but then also some, some editing and post, right? Yeah, overdubbed a whole corral of saxophones or added some extra guitar layers or things like that. So there's some some elements where we're using the studio as an instrument to hmm. warp space and time as mm. as you said and uh and that that is a hmm. quite a yeah, it's 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 wonderful to have that portfolio. I mean, it's a challenging process just like, "Oh, I'm excited to do this thing." Then we record and get in the middle of it, in the middle of mixing and hmm. then you suddenly hate everything and then, "Okay, hmm. no, I said not that bad." And you know, going 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 through that and and learning through the process of you know, I really wanted the product to be like feeling like a final product, which it did. But it, as I go, it's really documenting these different different parts of my journey. So now I have uh, yeah, four albums as a as a leader, and hmm. the process has been similar, but different different projects, different people, different sounds. Hmm. But I kind of I like this idea of here's maybe what the the arc of the album is is going to be, hmm. or here's the concept. Um, which is different than maybe a than a, a gig where it's hey we'll try this we'll try some of that mm-hmm. and call something else on on the fly. Mm-hmm. So there's a mix of you know a lot of improvising on all of them, but also some predetermined structures and mm. things to and edits and hmm. fixes later. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned like the shape of the whole album because when I was recording my album, I wasn't sure about the order mm-hmm. I would put it in. Mm-hmm. At some point, I did decide upon the order, and I remember I wrote out all the song names on little pieces of paper mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I like laid them out so that I could rearrange them and then I you know thought about it and and, and mm-hmm. adjusted things a little more but I had I like I knew I wanted to record this um, collection so to speak the album's called sticker collection mm-hmm. uh but the reason I wanted to do that is because I'd written these songs when I was like 14 to 17 <laughs> in high school and I felt like I needed to wrap that up, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I was like, okay, these are done. Like, this is what I've been playing at, at the time. Once I started recording it, I'd written other songs by that point, but there was this kind of like clear group of songs. And I was like, well, if I don't record these now, like, when am I going to record them? Mm-hmm. Like, even as a 17 year old or 17, 18 year old person, I know 17, I was like, I, I knew I wasn't going to want to be recording like the music that I'd written in high school at a later date necessarily, um, yeah. or certainly that the moment would be different. So I was like, okay, like I felt almost a responsibility to do it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why I wrote these songs. I don't know where I, they came from. Like, I'm still in high school. I haven't figured anything out, guys. But like, mm-hmm. I guess I better like, like, mm-hmm. like finish them off and, uh, and, and, and have them be in the world in uh, in in that recorded form. Yeah, it's uh, it's important to document it when it feels when it feels like it's the right time and the vibe's good. Like that's mm-hmm. um, time to do it. With my last recording project, this EP called Snowline Suite, kind of ma- mountain themed mm-hmm. music. But it was uh, it started with a collaboration with my friend Annie Booth. She's a pianist in the Denver area. Another one, uh, two two pianists in Denver. I brought up, but. We we met at a workshop in in Banff for the three week jazz and creative music workshop. Met people from all over the world, and and we played and and we and we stayed in touch. And she invited me up to Denver to play a couple of gigs, and I brought her to Seattle. We did like a two city tour, which worked well because I I showed up there and she booked a bunch of gigs. I played with her band, and then she came to Seattle and vice versa. So the booking mm. was easier because we just tapped into our community. So I, I was a fan of the two city tour, mm. and yeah, I, I wrote wrote music for it, and it worked. Well, I had a good vibe with her trio that already played well together, and the, my mu- my music brought sort of a different different flavor of things. There were some things that were a little more textural or experimental, and it mm. but it worked well with her group, and it was a good vibe. But I got, you know, the gigs were really fun. I was like, oh, we should record this soon, you know, while it's feeling fresh. 
but I got some altitude sickness in Denver, so found a way to bring her band out here so I didn't have to acclimate. Yeah, it was yeah, it was super fun gigs with our band. We played this great jazz club, but I was like sick and throwing up between sets or whatever. Oh, no. Then went back out and had like a really awesome set. It was super fun. But I'm like, let's maybe record out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't have to like wait around for a week or two to to get used to it. I'm glad we did that and we've, you know, we'll connect again, but it just felt like, oh, that was the right time to record this stuff and Mm. Yeah, and that came out during the pandemic, so it was. It felt like I had a little bit of a grace period to be productive. I'm like, okay, I, I'm actually releasing music during the pa- early in the pandemic, mm. so it looks like I'm doing something here where we're all stuck at stuck at home. Um, but so, you know, the, the release concert had to be canceled and all that. Now I'll still play it, but mm. at the time it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm going to go now and oh, let's tour, let's do a delayed release tour two years later. I'm like, well, it mm. doesn't it doesn't feel like the right time. Like we'll still, I'm sure. We'll, we'll get together and play this stuff again, but it's, hmm. yeah, it's okay. That's how it, that's how it yeah. went. And I'm glad we, yeah, glad we recorded it when we did. Cause it's, um, I'm, you know, I can be my own biggest critic, but this one I felt, yeah, really good about how it, how it turned out and happy we ha- have that nice. in the portfolio. Yeah. And I think like we both kind of talked about the sense of timing, right? Like that sometimes mm-hmm. with the, you know, we were both creative people with lots of ideas so i i find for myself sometimes it's a bit of a a a tricky yet simple process of like intuiting like what is it the right time for and what is time sensitive now and sometimes you were talking about just kind of like recognizing a good thing and then Mm -hmm. and then feeling a bit of a sense of um urgency or responsibility or um to to kind of help midwife that thing, that like that shiny thing that we notice. Yeah, midwife is a verb. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, yeah. To, to bring to life, to yeah. sort of help, help. I mean, in some cases, it's already there, right? But to kind of help get it out into the yeah. world in a different form. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so what makes you not write music with words? If I sometimes you're like you were asking me about words and poetry and the intersection yeah. for me. Um, Maybe that's not the right question for you, yeah. but you know what I mean? Like has have has working with words factored into or not factored into any of those kind of creative processes for you? Yeah. It's, well, yeah, all of my all of my projects are instrumental. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, the Kenny Wheeler project I did with Ingrid Jensen. I can talk more about that more. We did have uh, Katie Jacobson, a good friend of mine, the as a vocalist on that and from this library of Kenny Wheeler's music, he would use the voice Norma Winstone would sing and it would be this wordless, not, not scat singing, but more like a te- textural as part of mm. the ensemble sound. So the, the voice was wrapped in mm. as another, almost had like another, another horn. And we, yeah, but there's not, we we did so we did some music with with lyrics with Katie, mm. but not that we not that we recorded. Hmm. Uh, but it makes it, it is something I want to explore more because I love songwriters. Some of my favorite music that I've listened to, um, some of my favorite songwriters. Uh, one here, uh, Jeremy Enoch, who's a singer songwriter, mm. the front man for uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, one of my favorite Seattle bands, and you know, listen to a lot of Elliot Smith and Iron and Wine, and you know, it's mm. a really provocative music with with lyrics and it does mm. add another dimension mm. uh but yeah it's an area that yeah i definitely want to collaborate with more songwriters in the future i just did a project with my friend Lacey brown who's a singer songwriter and late we did this you know asynchronously laid some saxophone tracks down we're gonna uh work on some things but there's yeah i mean the music as we talked about before music being a language or, or not a language so yeah. the, the 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 way of just different dimensions of expression that can happen with the music on its own outs- mm-hmm. outside of the lyrics. And it's, it just, it's a different, different dimension. And sometimes lyrics can, well, certainly tell more of a specific story, but sometimes if lyrics are trite or I'm not happy, like there's some songs that are just, I think, Oh, this music is beautiful. And I listen carefully to the lyrics. I'm like, Oh, it kind of ruined the vibe because these lyrics aren't happening. You, you know what I, you yeah. Know what I mean like when that- I, yeah, I think as a songwriter, I felt at times 
a little like jealous and resentful of <laughs> instrumentalists because <laughs> yeah. I was kind of I, there were times right where and I have I have uh, like played in bands as the keyboard player or like uh, you know singing and doing keyboard and not being um, or in some cases other instruments and uh, like not being the front person so like I've done mm. some of that and I've done um, you know some some. Uh, like film music and sound and I've done lots of my own instrumental only exploration by sometimes you know it with a singer songwriter label it was sort of like why do I have all this responsibility to put words to things like it like why do I have like mm. do I have to assign this extra level yeah. of complexity and meaning like can I just focus on the music um which of course I also on the other hand feel grateful <laughs> that I can work with that I can work with um words now especially I'm finding it very interesting like working with words with no music at all and so the flip side of that right of being like why can't I just write words and not worry about all the music <laughs> um right but I uh now I'm I like having the choices right of working mm -hmm. just instrumentally or just with words or you know, a combination of that and a combination of that and other things. Yeah. And I'm more interested in exploring all the shades of it. But I think feeling like, wow, like I really have to make sure what I say is important or worthy or worthwhile if I'm uh, like choosing to lean into the the lexical, the words, <laughs> the, that part of it, um, mm. as opposed to immersing myself creatively and exploring some of those less tangible less linguistically based yeah. elements yeah actually this might be a good moment yeah i'll warp space and time again put in some of uh yeah a clip from that that project yeah invisible sounds for kenny wheeler with some of the the wordless vocals so you can hear the yeah. texture of what what this sounds like to have the voice in the mix but not playing the role of a quote jazz singer mm. but the voice and it yeah, to have this particular timbre, it, it has to be the human voice. Like sticking another horn in its place wouldn't be the same, but how it blends into the the, the timbre. Let's see. So I think that, yeah, the biddle I'll play is from, uh, we did a, a medley, a mashup of this is a gentle piece turning into old ballad. I'm not sure what clip I'm going to play, but you'll hear something. Here we go. using the voice as yeah. an instrument and as an ensemble instrument mm -hmm. uh like growing up i sang in choirs from the time i was very young uh on and off different kinds of choirs i sang in an intergenerational choir uh which was a an awesome way of kind of developing skills singing harmonies mm -hmm. um with adults around me but i also sang in 
choirs with my peers. Um, and then around the time I was making uh, my, my first album, I learned about this experimental improvising choir in, mm. in Toronto called the Element Choir. And so I ended up uh, exploring with the Element Choir, lots of stuff to do with, uh, sometimes working with instruments too, but but in an ensemble setting, using our voices in instrumental ways. And mm. that was uh, definitely like de just definitely formative as a lead, like as a musical leader, seeing leadership mm. uh, in 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 an ensemble, an ensemble, but in an improvising context. Um, but also just as a sound maker, like doing something really fun and collaborative and 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 experimental and exploring this with so many other people while I was yeah. working on this this album that was my stuff as a singer songwriter and gigging yeah. as a singer songwriter being the band leader in that context it was really cool to be in this playground zone with all these other improvising choir members <laughs> mm. yeah absolutely when you're in that in that kind of zone or in that in that type of environment where you get to explore new sounds and new textures and ways of interacting with people that's so much different from what you're doing with your other projects, but mm -hmm. they all, they feed into one another. And this is something we talked about before too, about the, the saxophone. I mean, it's almost a cliche now, but oh, the saxophone is so, you know, it's so close to the human voice or, you know, that's like mm -hmm. a cliche thing about why people play the saxophone or why it's so wonderful, how expressive mm -hmm. and you can shape the pitch in certain ways. Um, as I said, I, I've heard that so many times as a saxophone player, it's almost a cliche now, but we, we were talking about that, the ways of, you know, performing a wind instrument and the the way of shaping the tone and, mm -hmm. you know, some, using how we're, we, we call it voicing when we're playing a wind instrument, exactly the shape that our mouth and our tongue position is making to change the timbre and the pitch of sound, which is similar to language. And it it becomes so automatic, some of these, these vo voicing things that we do. So, you know, really trying to si sing through the horn. Um, I mean, in a more abstract sense, but also mm. like f physically. Um, mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. it's like in the in the project you described the voice almost becoming a horn, but mm -hmm. you're describing this context like yeah. the horn almost becoming a voice, so to speak, yeah. and that kind of interplay. Yeah, and, the and there's two. been there's been times too in my group on my a couple of my records I covered. You know, I've, I've covered an Iron Wine song, Sunny Day Real Estate song. There's just some of my f favorite music that I just really wanted to be part of. And oftentimes I'm playing the lead line on the horn, but it's like, oh, the words aren't there. And it's like, oh, it's not quite the same. Like doing this that maybe needs to be vocal music and doing an instrumental cover. But there are times like, okay, trying to sing through the horn. But for certain times, if the words aren't there, it's not quite the same. But hmm. um, and I'm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'm curious in terms of like the use of your voice versus the use of your horn. And mm. and this might not be something, <laughs> I yeah. didn't plan to ask you this, this might not be yeah. something you explored, but um, like what using the horn in those ways, thinking about the horn vocally, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, has maybe how that has influenced your use of your own voice or your use of voices. Like we often yeah. use the word voice to mean different parts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like, in using your own voice, because as a as a voice teacher, mm -hmm. I of course have learned that many musicians would consider themselves not to be vocalists, mm -hmm. and many vocalists consider themselves not to be yeah. musicians, or at least not to be instrumentalists. Um, shockingly, uh, so do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Like what? Yeah, sure. Uh, boy, I wish I had been singing or using my voice like starting from when I was younger. Like I'm, you know, little sing-alongs every now and then, but that that was about it. So even in my training, I wasn't asked to sing anything so it's not so it's very um uh yeah so it's, it's like a very vulnerable place like oh if i need to sing in front of people but i end up using it as a tool well when i went to music school uh at new england there was a it was a very like ear training was such an integral part so we had to we did like intensive solfege and sight singing and doing it in front of the class and the jazz ear training classes we had to like listen to music off a recording and be able to sing it back unaccompanied to the TA. It was just mm. lots of singing and it was super uncomfortable. And I remember the first time I was in ear training class, they said, oh, we're going to sing this like Billie Holiday song. And the teacher sang it and we had to sing it back. And I just like blundered it and everyone's laughing. Like everyone mm. was literally laughing at me. Mm. Oh, it was fine. But it was, uh, okay, I have to get used to doing that. But it started, you know, l later enough in my training that the never felt super comfortable. But on the same, on the, the flip side, we use our voice 
so much more than our instrument. Most of us talk more than we play. Mm. Well, de- depends what stage of life you're in. I guess there's plenty of times where I played played saxophone a lot more than I than I talk. But sometimes when I'm still writing, so I use my voice as a tool more. I mean, when I'm teaching a lot, I mean, I'm still singing and I'm vocalizing things that I'm hearing. Sometimes I'll sing it and go to the piano, but it's it's not something that I'm like comfortable like per- performing as, as far as like an expressive instrument that I'm going to be on stage hmm. singing anything versus being uh you know being able to hide in the background vocals or, hmm. or something like that so I haven't but it, it's yeah I mean there have been some some projects where I was actually working on songs with words that hadn't been recorded you know and, and and singing a bit but it's definitely that's a yeah that, mm-hmm. that's a yeah, e- yeah. Even talking about that's making me nervous. So that's not. It's like an area that certainly explored a bit. Would like to do. Yeah, have that be mm. a a tool. But I definitely want yeah, some of my students to be singing. Like we're singing a lot more and singing along with drones and tuning intervals with our voice. So I still, I mean, I'll still do that. Try to sing intervals. Mm-hmm. We still, even as uncomfortable as I would be with singing, like there are elements of it that still feel more natural than having this giant piece of brass and leather and mm. wood and and having that be a be a barrier um mm. uh but yeah I, just but what you're saying about that that choir that sounds similar in some ways to some projects that i've been involved in the last few years with sound painting mm. which is a uh so i'm in, involved in a ensemble here in seattle called scrambler and the leader of that put together during the pandemic a worldwide multidisciplinary ensemble of peeping people performing and recording uh, online, but yeah, sound painting's a it's a multidisciplinary sign language for music. Basically, we have you still have, it's a way of organizing an improvised piece. Well, Walter Thompson who created he doesn't call it improvisation; he calls it live composition, which mm. sounds confusing. So a lot of us still call it a conducted improvisation because that's <laughs> what it what it looks like. But what's the line between being composed and improvised? Another another topic, but mm-hmm. you have there's, there's still there's a leader in front who's giving a series of signs and gestures, and each gesture gives some specific information about how the performers respond. But each of us have our own freedom within each of those signs to make some creative decisions. So it could be like, you know, everyone, you know, everyone sings a long tone. You can modify it, or this person will relate to this. You improvise and you accompany, or this group is playing and now this other group will do something else. And you can structure all of that with the, with the leader. Mm-hmm. And there's all, we've explored all kinds of things. I mean, everything from around the holidays, we always deconstruct the nutcracker suite and we have, we actually have charts we're reading, but then there's areas where it gets rearranged and mm. gets goes and it gets, and it gets wild. And but yeah, throughout the pandemic, collaborating with people all, all over the world, a clarinet player in Turkey and a visual artist and actor in Argentina mm. and a violin player in Belgium and a dancer in Texas and mm. mm-hmm. visual artist in Munich. And we all like get together and, and we've been producing some of these, yeah, in, these, yeah, these wild projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds similar in some ways to your yeah. element choir. Maybe we could... Yeah, and I mean, I'm imagining that the yeah. conductor of the Element Choir, Christine, Christine Duncan, it sounds like there's some crossover between the in terms of the use of signs and mm. and the approaches. Um, and it, I, when you were talking about the voice being vulnerable, I was struck by that and how free because it is so vulnerable. I mean, that's something I acknowledge like every day to myself mm-hmm. because it that that you know, it hits me in the face, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Like when I if I feel like if ever we feel our voices aren't vulnerable, we'll learn again that they are in some mm-hmm. ways. <laughs> like, you know, as much as we can of course gain confidence and comfort, our voice is really it's a very intimate thing mm-hmm. and it can be a very confusing thing because because we can't see it and mm-hmm. and direct it and perceive it in quite the same way that we can like dancing in front of a mirror or something like Mm. that um so yeah at the time being in the element choir not only for me at the time as an 18 year old was it this like creative kind of explosion of sort i had Mm. done lots of different kinds of improvising and ensemble work through theater and movement and and other kinds of things but uh it was it was just this this great creative marinade so to speak but mm. also a chance to really explore my voice in some ways that were not like you're doing a gig you're making an album mm. you're this you know um yeah. th- which is 
stressful in many ways, right? As you're trying to elevate your skill and you're trying to not screw up, <laughs> you know, and and perform, but being in an ensemble where we're using our voice in really, in really creative ways um, and exploring that aspect of it was just, it was really cool ar- yeah. around that time. And I think in our conversations, um, I hadn't to- necessarily told you a lot about the Element Choir, but hearing about sound painting, I was like, oh yeah, I know this. And even though it's not mm-hmm. something I'm doing as regularly as you, it feels very, uh, very present to me because although now it was many years ago <laughs> that I was that I was doing uh, singing with the or in vocalizing with the Element Choir, I've done different kinds of sound making mm-hmm. and improvising since, and so it's it still feels very yeah. a moment away. <laughs> Is the Element Choir still going today? Is it? That's a good question. I. That's a very good question. I was part of an album they recorded, and I mm. know they were doing some really neat projects around the time I was moving away from Toronto, which was about six years ago. Mm. And Toronto. See, now, now I'm getting a little light bulb. I'm like, okay, that's what that grant proposal can go for. Fly the whole <laughs> worldwide sound painting ensemble to like be part of the <laughs> forces with the element choir and see what happens. But yeah, the, uh, the sound painting, it didn't invent this idea of using hand signs like or you know conducted types of uh improvised pieces it's like there was lots of folks that have done it i mean i was i've been part of the groups that we were doing it even before knew knowing that there was a system like that but this particular one was created in the 70s kind of this like second generation of avant-garde jazz happening this creative music studio uh, in woodstock new york and there's but there was someone else at the same time coming up with a similar process that's called conduction conducted improvisation butch morris and he has ensembles and it was very similar to sound painting i mean almost identical concepts and they were just coming up at the same time but then they found out about each other and i think they had a little rivalry so i was talking mm. to walter the sound painting guy and he would like send like spies to the conduction rehearsals and like steal some of his signs and he'd try to make more and you know they ended up becoming like great friends and i play in groups that around here they do conduction as well and they have different uh you know, d- different, different, different flavors, and I find the conduction the conduction system works really well for musicians who are more experienced improvisers. It's like more intuitive and feels more like an orchestra conductor with a baton. Mm. And sound painting can give some more very specific things, especially for when I do this with workshops with doesn't say kids or or adults who have never done this before, and they they need a little they need some more instruction. Sound painting can be more specific, but can also be open. And the multidisciplinary angle is it it, it makes mm-hmm. it. It's a cool it's a cool story to tell as I'm leading these things and go, oh, by the way, there's over 1,600 signs and hmm. artists of all disciplines can do it. So I've on my on the teaching side of things, I've moved this the sound painting direction as that system because it's got a cool hmm. story. There's people doing it all over the world, particularly in, hmm. in Europe. Um, but there's yeah, so many other other ways to get at some similar similar concepts. So was that at all and that kind of thing a part of your world when you were exploring your your the the technical vocal stuff in uh, uh in school or was this uh, something that only kind of came into your awareness later on that you were able to use? Like did you get a taste of it earlier that kind of got you excited? Mm. Yeah, when this type of thing at first started it was actually my first week at, at, at music school. So, I mean, NEC mm. was a very, I mean, it's this, you know, European classical conservatory model, but then there was a small jazz program, like 70 people in it, but it was very progressive and very left wing as far as jazz programs go. Like once you were there, mm. you could kind of study with who you wanted, play whatever, almost play whatever music you wanted. If you could pass the solfege, the sight singing, it was, it was, it was hard to get into, but once we were there, we were just like, we had total autonomy. So it was like, people were really, it was just a, a magical environment that hmm. people were working really hard and working on their craft, but it was never competitive. Like who was going to make the top band that everything hmm. was just different. So some people, there were people that were really into uh, like playing like Latin American music. And then people that were playing, you know, straight ahead standard mm-hmm. jazz standards and some that were doing crazy music, uh, doing like, like avant-garde experiments and doing people playing Americana and we all kind of find our people and exploring and, and doing different things. But I think it was the mm. first week of school I did uh, is a game piece by John Zorn that's called Cobra, mm. which has some, some cue cards and like a sophisticated, it's like 
slightly complex set of rules to learn, and they're a little abstract. He never published all of the rules, so it's a little bit you had to learn it orally from John Zorn. So if you didn't, so there's people that have done it and led it, and everyone does it a little different. So there's a little bit of mystery around it. So he would do yeah. a series of game pieces, and it was similar results. Like, okay, this group of people is going to start now. You copy this person now. Now when we hold up this sign you have to completely change the style of music you're playing mm. or you have to take over for this other musician. And it was, mm. it was wild. It was super fun. People from all different backgrounds could come together and play, but it was learning all the, it was fun. It was theatrical because someone's waving around the cue cards and they're like big colorful signs and hmm. there's some guerrilla tactics where you put on a headband and then, and then you can like try to take over the leader. And it, so there's like this theatrical element happening and so, for some very abstract music. And so that was my first, experience doing something like that and it's you know some music that i've performed throughout the years but i find it super helpful on the education side when i'm making these like community community workshops mm -hmm. where i'm pulling people together from different backgrounds different levels of experience and here we can actually improvise we can create together mm -hmm. uh, without having it be like a specific musical language or rhythmic language or mm -hmm. It's it's it can be ways it's a little bit more open that people can just right off the bat start creating together, mm -hmm. and it's it's really fun being part of the sound painting ensemble. But a lot of the music that I've recorded and played are some more music that's maybe more slightly more traditionally composed with improvised mm -hmm. elements. But this is yeah this area has opened up yeah different ways of approaching music and listening and interacting and experimenting and. Yeah. yeah and, and as you say that i i realized that as much as i said oh the element choir was kind of an explosion for me and it was it was mm. more people of a greater diversity of background many of whom had other musical projects right and other other um expertise right so it was a different kind of creative coming together because there was just more people we were i was performing more often with them right so it was a different type of thing but that type of ensemble play and work and uh, different ways of of working together to make creative things and sound was actually before that for me with theater games. And mm. so hearing you describe some of those things, I was like, ah, you know, as much as at that time it was hugely impactful, I was I was no stranger to the strangeness. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I'd been I'd been exploring that kind of thing in theater contexts uh, mm -hmm. with with different kinds of of approaches to improv theater, uh, both for performance and for skill development and yeah. for creative development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's something I definitely want to have future conversations about because there are that there's so much to draw from for multidisciplinary collaborations, like what theater people do. You know, when you say improvisation or improv for most people, some think music and other think theater. Like those are the most common associations people people have mm -hmm. and you know, I put together this, I started taking a lot of my educational activities and putting it under this infinite improvisation brand during the pandemic. But one of the, the programs um, that I've been most excited about is called the Game Symphony Workshop, which is taking some of those elements from, uh, from theater games or sketch comedy and working with, working with musicians. So mm -hmm. I don't have that theater background other than like a high school drama class, but I've studied some of these study some of these games and also talk with someone who led a group of musicians who were like doing improvised music for the second city theater in Chicago and doing like improvised soundtracks to improvise mm, theater yeah, yeah. and pulling that together. And I find that that's really helpful. I mean, as a, as a process and, and to make interesting music, but really helpful for as as, as the process or helping people along who, cause there's so much fear and anxiety around improvising and being a soloist and like, we're going to play guess the animal and you're going to make chicken sounds in front of your friends. And it's just so disarming and people are just more loose for being creative and spontaneous and, and, you know, using the novelty to get people engaged and feel like it's a community experience and using that as the, the gateway to more, uh, I don't want to say more serious, but more like listening intensive and other you know, composition and, and improvisation mm -hmm. and all of that. So, well, that's part of it too. Like what mindset are we approaching things with? And mm -hmm. is it, you know, are we approaching things with a sense of fun and play and exploration or are we 
goal or product focused. And I, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to say that there isn't a place for being goal and product focused, of mm-hmm. course, right? Um, and, and those might, like there can be intersections in that for sure. But um, it can be fun to, to mix things up. I find the more that I believe in improv, mm-hmm. um, which, which is a question I have which we may be saving for a, f- a future a future episode, mm-hmm. which is like, we talked about the why of improv, but you know, the personal connection of why, why believe, you know, like, yeah. like why believe in it. But um, the more I, I believe that it's a good thing to do, the more I thrust myself and other folks into to doing it when they aren't expecting to, like when, you know, in an early childhood class, I'm much more with, with and by that, I mean like with babies and, and parents online, I'm more, much more likely now to be like, hey, you can just improvise a little, you know, a little solo here mm-hmm. at this part of the song for your baby. Please, I promise your baby will like it. Go ahead. You're muted. No harm mm-hmm. in it. Give it a try. Come on. <laughs> you know, and as much as I, that's an invitation. I never, you know, force anyone to, but kind of just, just throwing it in there seeing, seeing what happens, right? <laughs> yeah. Integrating it more often. Yeah. And as we navigate this, this will be its own when we get to the, the how, but talking about the element of, of play. So when we talk about, oh, something's playful and fun in the game, it has this idea of, oh, it's, you know, it's trivial and not, and not serious, not serious music. But there's this uh, quote I, I just brought up and we'll come back to this in a future episode as well. But this is Stephen Nachmanovich's other book, not the one I sent you. It's what's mm. called Free Play. But he talking about this idea, yeah, the free play, improv- improvisation and Life and art, I believe, is the the tagline. Uh, that I I love how he pulls this together. So he says there there's an old Sanskrit word lila, which means play, but richer than our word, it means divine play, the play of creation, destruction, and recreation, the folding and unfolding of the cosmos. Lila, free and deep, is both delight and enjoyment of this moment. It's the play of God, and it also means love. And I I think we better leave it there because yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because that, I can't sum it up better than that. Yeah, I I mean, that's it. We're playing, you know, it could be playing a game. It could be like the, you know, universe spitting out planets, you know. So it's like, it's, uh, yeah, so. And so it spirals. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we've got. And with that, we'll leave you wanting more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very good. Okay, well, thank, thanks for listening. Go to infiniteimprovisation.com and you can connect with us in our online community and, and we'll, we'll see you next time. Yay. Yeah. <laughs>